Today, the church remembers Absalom Jones. Technically, it's tomorrow, but we are observing it today, and I'll just let you know right now, this is a little bit of a history lesson, because the Episcopal Church, I'm so proud to say, has been tied up in the making of this country from its beginning, and we are today as well. And what an illustration we have in the life of Absalom Jones. I read these years out every year because it, it's a, surprising. Absalom Jones lived from 1746, I'm not misspeaking, I'm reading it, 1746 to 1818. He was the first black man to be a priest in the Episcopal Church, a freedman, 1746 to 1818. He was born in Delaware in a family that was enslaved. He lived in Delaware and Philadelphia in the course of his life. He was born when Delaware was a colony and was 30 when the Revolutionary War began. So for context, he lived within the early years of the United States of America deciding what it would be. An individual life, a righteous, self-sacrificing, courageous person with a family, a priest whose writings and witness leave us with a trace of what it means to believe that God calls you to freedom, a freedom greater than the laws of your country allow, and a religious, moral, and legal imagination very different than what you might think America was about in 1760 or in 1808. The contradiction of the moral imagination and our lived realities plays through all of Jones's life, and paired with the readings that we have for today, present us with the Christian vision for public life to sacrificially love one another. Tenderness is what love looks like in private, the theologians tell us. Justice is what it looks like in public. And yet, as Gandhi himself said, it appears that violence is the only tool of the state. Isn't that something? What can we expect of any relationship we do not have direct control over, our families often tell us, right? The poets and justice seekers in India, particularly from the untouchable community in India, wrote of towns called the city of love and the city of justice and their values of equality, sounding a lot like John 15, which we just heard, maybe because they required it to survive love and justice. Now Absalom Jones was born enslaved. His enslaved family was separated and he sent away as a youth, very convicting for us, with a Mr. Wincop, a vestryman of Christ Episcopal Church in Philadelphia, who must have heard this part of John read every year. Absalom Jones later marries, paid for his wife's freedom, and petitioned successfully for his own freedom twice. He was literate and eloquent, deeply religious. He and Richard Allen were leaders in the prosperous free black community in Philadelphia, a community committed to freeing black people throughout the then United States, always at great personal risk. Now last year, it felt to me very appropriate to spend some time on the love and care at great personal risk of both Absalom Jones and Richard Allen during the yellow fever epidemic, so suited to the days that we have all just lived. 
But this year, Joan's distinctive voice in America to the government on behalf of black people in the United States has been sitting with me this month in this moment when the teaching of all of American history, his history, this history, is contested. And a young man named Tyree Nichols has joined the list of names of black people brutalized to death by police. As we are debating in this city what our police force is for and what their responsibilities should be and how and where they should be trained and to whom they are accountable, Absalom Jones and Richard Allen in those years, well before slavery was made illegal in most of the United States, were part of networks that freed enslaved people. And now if that sounds obvious to you, that would at the time have meant that they were relieving owners of their paid property. It was a defiance of the ways of the time, a logic being developed in those days in real time to justify the kidnapping and forced labor and unspeakable violence towards people in this country from Africa. Racism as we have it today and the violence that defines and defends it was being worked out philosophically, theologically to our shame and legally in the time of Jones's life. And many, many were resisting it. Not nearly enough, but many. And you can see it clearly in Absalom Jones's writing. He makes the very good point that black people are not mentioned in the Constitution and that distinction should not be made in the law. But of course it has. Absalom Jones contested the Fugitive Slave Act by petition and built mutual aid societies to help recently freed people acquire the essentials for life and begin to establish their lives in places where they could be free. Jones was so effective, and don't we all wish that we were effective in this way, that he was accused of having some kind of witchcraft or magical powers. It was that he was so eloquent and inspiring. You can see it in his writing. He inspired freed people to work for the freedom of others, to not be afraid of being associated with those close to enslavement, to truly break the chains of oppression and offer a hand to the captive seeking freedom. It is so inspiring to remember Absalom Jones and Richard Allen and Peter Williams in the same generation as the founding of our nation and our church. The Episcopal Church was only established in its current form in 1789 in Philadelphia, again, in his lifetime. And at that time, the capital of the new United States was also right there in Philadelphia. Absalom Jones was at the heart of things in this new nation, becoming a priest in what had been the established church in much of the former colonies, and in a state that rejected slavery. An anomaly, like a Moses or a Joseph, safe when the courts of the king, called Pennsylvania at the time, surrounded by a nation that enslaved what were becoming in this new America, his people. I hope you can hear that none of this was inevitable, set in stone from the beginning of time. We are living with the ideas that were germinating right then, ideas about love and justice, ideas about violence and the degradation that are our collective heritage, that has fallen brutally on the backs for generations of black people. In the gospel reading assigned for Absalom Jones, we hear about no longer being a servant, but a friend of Jesus. Older translations of the Bible that some of you might remember like me, use the word slave there, 
not servant. So slave to friend is the transition, and it might be why we have this reading. The invitation in the reading is to share in God's vision of community, which is to be bound to one another in love. Not with power, not with violence, but love in response to power and violence. The heart of Absalom Jones is teaching to his own community and to us today. Now, as India was forming itself in the early 1900s, Gandhi wrote that the power the state or government has is violence, as I said. And I've been wondering about that this week alongside our friend Absalom Jones, who believed clearly a different thing. Because Jones is known for writing a petition to contest the Fugitive Slave Act, in which he petitions the same kind of Christian government that Gandhi is referencing to change an unjust law. Maybe because a government can free from violence and set the groundwork for love and justice to flourish. The beauty of an Absalom Jones is a voice raised up in resistance. He offers a vision of dignity and power from the powerless, even though he was so close to that power. But can the powerful do good? More than violence is the question. Is it the way of the world that mutual aid societies, by definition, the work of the powerless, are the best we can do? Like we do in our communities when we bring that basket forward and take food to those in need and set up a crossroads, our best efforts on the periphery are good Samaritan spaces. Dr. King told us to look up the road and ask why people keep getting beat up on that road and fall on this spot on the road to make the connections and change the law. Jones did the same in his time. On December 30th, 1799, more than 60 years before the Civil War, Jones petitions the House of Representatives to reverse the Fugitive Slave Act. Now, I looked this up to see if it would have been easier to do in his time than in our time because it seems so audacious. Um, and pretty much it's not. It was pretty hard to do back then too. And so the Fugitive Slave Act would have potentially re-enslaved every black person in the United States. He was compelling enough in his petition. He wrote it, 71 citizens of Philadelphia signed it. It was debated on the floor of the House of Representatives and is in the record. It was divisive and provocative enough to be defeated. Um, one person voted for it. But let me just read a part of it to you because it casts a vision of how we might think of ourselves in public and the republic we're a part of. This is just a portion. The law not long since enacted by Congress called the Fugitive Bill is in its execution found to be attended with circumstances peculiarly hard and distressing. For many of our afflicted brethren, in order to avoid the barbarities wantonly exercised upon them, or through fear of being carried off by those men-stealers, have been forced to seek refuge by flight. They are then hunted by armed men, and under color of this law, cruelly treated, shot or brought back in chains to those who have no just claim upon them. In the Constitution, in the Fugitive Bill, no mention is made of black people or slaves. Therefore, if the Bill of Rights or the Declaration of Congress are of any validity, we beseech that as we are men, we may be admitted to partake <clears throat> of the liberties and unalienable, unalienable rights therein held forth. 
firmly believing that the extending of justice and equity to all classes would be a means of drawing down the blessings of heaven upon this land for the peace and prosperity of which and the real happiness of every member of the community we fervently pray. He is referencing the Fugitive Slave Act, which gave us slave patrols, which are a miserable part of the history of policing in this country. And we must know these histories to understand the level of transformation hiding behind the word justice. Remember Absalom Jones is an Episcopal priest petitioning the House of Representatives, a friend of Jesus and a friend of that young America. The Episcopal Church has found itself at the heart of these conversations throughout our history, sometimes in unexpected ways. So I'm going to read to you, as I will annually, if you'll tolerate it, some civil rights history, as told by the Reuters News Service. Throughout 1961, groups of activists known as Freedom Riders challenged segregation in interstate public transit stations in the South. The Supreme Court had outlawed such segregation in a ruling the previous year but local police still arrested hundreds of protesters who descended on the South to enter whites-only or colored-only areas of bus and train stations. With that backdrop, the Reverend Robert L. Pearson, a white Episcopal priest, and 14 other priests, both black and white, knew they were risking arrest or worse when they boarded a bus on September 12, 1961, on what they called a prayer pilgrimage. In less than 48 hours, when the group entered a whites-only area of a bus terminal in Jackson, Mississippi, for lunch, all 15 were arrested and jailed for breach of peace. A local judge sentenced the priest to the maximum four months in jail, plus a $200 fine each. The charges were dismissed on appeal. The priests then turned around and sued the police under Section 1983 of the Ku Klux Klan Act for violating their civil rights through unlawful arrest. The act is one of three laws passed in the early, early 1870s to protect black people from civil rights violence. After a jury decided against the priests, they appealed to the New Orleans-based Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. That court identified errors in the trial and ordered that a new one be held. The fifth court also ruled that the police were not immune from the federal lawsuit, a conclusion that the officers appealed to the Supreme Court. By then, Chief Justice Earl Warren's high court had handed down many landmark decisions that expanded the civil rights of black Americans, including the Brown decision, which struck down segregation in schools in 1954. But on April 11, 1967, the justices dealt a blow to Pearson and the other clergy who would find similar, file similar lawsuits in the decades to come. Warren wrote in his opinion that while police are not entitled to, and he, this is in quotes, is his new language, absolute and unqualified immunity, officers should not be held liable, in quotes, if they acted in good faith and with probable cause in making an arrest under a statute that they believed to be valid, that they believed to be valid. The officers had argued that they believed arresting the priests for breach of peace was justifiable because the aim was to prevent violence. If this were the case, the Supreme Court ruled, the officers deserved 
immunity. The priests had argued that the officer's intent was not to prevent violence, but to enforce segregation in violation of the priest's constitutional rights. Warren's idea that officers acting in good faith should not be held accountable for federal civil rights violations laid the groundwork for today's interpretation of qualified immunity for police. The concept evolved as the courts worked to develop an objective test for whether an officer acted reasonably. So today, even if officers are found to have violated a person's rights, judges must grant immunity if they find no clear precedent putting officers on notice that their actions were out of line. The Pearson ruling was a departure for the Warren court. This was the progressive court that just months later found that the laws banning interracial marriage were illegal in Loving versus Virginia. It is a fascinating part of our history that even the court considered the most protective of black people would introduce this doctrine and says something to us about the powerful institutional culture, not just of the police, but of the courts, the exalted place that both have in the natural consciousness. And that's the end of the quote. And I was just hearing this weekend of people in this room that were engaged in some of those movements. One who, when spit upon while desegregating a lunch counter, might have spit back. You can probably guess who it is if you think about it for a minute. It will make perfect sense. I know many of you have lived this history. And what this story I've just read doesn't say is that they planned these bus rides to attend the general convention of the Episcopal Church. It was a witness, and not all of them made it there, a witness to our church, which still had desegregating to do. The story is accompanied by the mugshots of all those priests, handsome young men in black and white with their little buzz cuts that people used to do back then, believers in a new American possibility, bizarrely the origins of qualified immunity, leaning back into a history of policing that their father in faith, Absalom Jones, had contested in 1808 in his petition in a new America that had taken on the bizarre task of defining who was a person, a free man, as they said at the time, under the law, for whom was freedom and justice and love. Now, we haven't settled that debate yet. Surprisingly enough, it roils on in our time. And now, as Heather McGee argues, that argument that was restricted to enslaved people and the people that chased them includes all of us. It potentially impacts all of us. We are a nation armed to the teeth for safety against we don't know what exactly. Does the language of love in our public life even make sense today? Can we hear it? The poet Ada Limon calls this the impossible age of everyone. But let's be clear, it's not the everyone that's the problem. It's not our diversity that's the problem. It is who is allowed to be free, granted freedom, protected in their freedom in this great land. And we are this great church of ours is implicated in how we have come to be who we are. And so we can be equally powerful in our time. This Black History Month, friends, we are reminded that Jesus invites us to be his friend. A friend of Jesus is one who shares in Jesus's vision, not just performing our tasks here to get back to real life when our shift as Christians is over at church but claiming love for one another in private, tenderness, kindness, truth-telling, repenting, turning, and love in public, 
in the collective, in the law, in the practice of the execution of the law, in disarming and making peace, in the creative use of the powers of the government, in a vision of peace on the streets, in justice for everyone. Blessed Absalom Jones, pray for us.